Uh, good morning. My name is Scott, uh, and uh, I am indeed the lead pastor here. My privilege to be with you all. Um, we are, this is our last week, believe it or not, in this series, Grammar of Faith, and I hope you've enjoyed it if you've been with us. What we've been doing is we've been looking at sort of some basics of Christian faith, but some words, phrases that we use a lot that sometimes we don't take our time and actually define, and then talk about how are these things meant to work out into our lives? How are, these, how are we to um, sort of activate these things in a way that, that makes a meaningful difference in, in how we live? And so we've talked about all manner of things. We've talked about uh, the Word of God, and we've talked about sin, and we've talked about the atonement, and we've talked about the incarnation of Jesus. And today, uh, maybe fittingly, hopefully fittingly, we're going to talk about uh, what Christians believe about the end of the world. Um, a light topic. Uh, Here's, here's what I want to say. The way that Christians normally talk about this is we get into very uh, sort of, if you will, intramural debates about the millennium and about the rapture and about trib and all this different stuff. And there may be no less relevant conversation both to our lives and to the lives especially of the non-believers around us than those kind of detail-oriented, oh, when's this going to happen, when's this going to happen, when's this going to happen? Yet, having said that, and we'll cover very little of that today, having said that, I think that a proper understanding of what we believe about the end of the world, that there may be a proper understanding, that there may be no more relevant thing for us as Christians and to those around us who don't believe these things, right? Like, just think about it. You just heard read the Christian hope that one day the entire world, the four corners of creation, will be utterly transformed, and so utterly transformed that not only will the bad things go away, but somehow, to use beautiful language from, from the Lord of the Rings of all places, um, that God rolls back evil such that all the sad things come untrue, and that every square inch of this planet will be exactly as God intended it to be, and you and I will finally be inhabiting bodies that are the way that they're supposed to be, with desires the way they're supposed to be, doing what we were created to do. Or, eventually, the sun will spin out, lose its energy, all matter will cease to exist in our galaxy, and we will return to utter nothingness. That's pretty consequential, right? Like, which of those is true? That's enormously consequential whether or not we are nothingness headed towards nothingness, or whether the, we're the creation of a good God who is powerful enough to one day take this broken, evil, messed up, imperfect world and bring it back to his divinely intended purposes, right? That's like a really important decision to make about what you believe about the end of the world. 
Um, when we were even teaching this uh, a while ago in discipleship course, we were trying to think of how to put so many different things together. And the way that we came up with to talk about this is to actually talk about um, misconceptions about the end of the world. And these are especially f- if you've been around church if, or if you've just been around Christians. These are, these are misconceptions. And so, uh, so that's how I'm going to organize uh, at least the first half of, of the message today. And so misconception number one, we're just going to start, we're just going to dive in because that's what we've done this whole series. There's a lot to cover. And these are intentionally provocative, <laughs> by the way. When you first read them, you're going to say, oh, he missaid that or something. But I didn't. Um, so the end of the world hasn't happened yet. Uh, <laughs> this is a misconception. It is a misconception that the end of the world hasn't happened yet. All right, what do I mean by that? Look at the way that the Gospels talk about the coming of Jesus into the human story. This is how Mark, one of the Gospel writers, one of Jesus' closest followers who wrote an account of Jesus' life, this is how he starts his account of that. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, you need a little bit of background here. Um, you're going to have to trust me that uh, in the Old Testament, there was a time that was foretold where God would come into human history and end human history as we know it. And Mark's gospel begins, that time is now. The other thing that's going on here is that in the Old Testament, it's the kingdom of God will one day show up in the human story. And as far as they were concerned, when that happens, the story's over. The end of the world is here. Mark's gospel proclaims, again, this was 2,000 years ago, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's Jesus himself at the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is another way of talking about the end of the world. This is from Daniel, one of the prophets of the Old Testament. It said that when God's son comes and all authority is handed over to him, for all intents and purposes, the story's over. That's how the story ends. And yet Jesus has a command as a result of the end of the world coming. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Wait, Jesus, I thought you just said the world's over, and yet you're telling us to go. Keep that in mind. This is Acts. This is the story of the, of the early church after Jesus is resurrected. They say, for these people are not drunk as you suppose. This is one of the great stories in the Bible, by the way, is the, the Holy Spirit who we talked about a couple weeks ago. He descends on the disciples. They all start talking in tongues, and it's this wild scene, and people are putting their faith in Jesus. Maybe you've been around a scene like this where it's a little bit wild, but people are putting their faith in Jesus. And the crowd concludes, well, these people must be drunk. This is Peter, he gets up, he says, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. By the way, that's 9 a.m. Um, be very early day drinking for the Christians. Um, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And in the last days it shall be. Again, 2,000 years ago, he's going, this is it. We're in the last days. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, this is a little bit early. I'm sort of pacing these out in the life of Jesus and the life of the early church. This is a little bit later in the life of the early church. Now, these things happen to them as an example. He's talking about, this is the Apostle Paul writing to this church in Corinth. Uh, he's talking about the Old Testament. He says, these were written, or these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The early the early New Testament 
Christian writers think that the world is over. And scholars have done all kinds of things with this, saying, oh, they got it wrong. Oh, they thought Jesus was going to come back within a couple years. Oh, look, they're in error. But as the New Testament then goes on, what's clearly developed is that they begin to understand that there is a sense in which the world has come to its conclusion. The end in the, in the sort of purpose-filled way. That, that yes, the, the world has come to its end. God has entered the human story. And yet, amazingly, surprisingly, and you watch this in the New Testament, they're going, oh, we get it. Instead of the end coming now, there's this time in between that we're going to live in where there's a sense in which the world has come to an end, but the story's not over. And the very fancy, I'll give you the, the $10 word that theologians use for this, the very fancy term for this is inaugurated eschatology. Say that after me, ready? I'll say it, then you say it. Inaugurated eschatology. Ugh, nothing delights a Bible nerd's heart more than hearing that chanted. All right, inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology, this is a very fancy word. Christians love this word. Um, it's a combo of two uh, Greek words that means eschatos, which is last, and then the logi, like theology, like the study of. Um, so the study of last things, okay, is eschatology. That's what we're talking about today. If you, want to t- if you really want to impress someone tomorrow at work, and they say, I heard you went to church. What did they talk about? You can say, we talked about eschatology. Okay, that'll impress your friends, a very specific sort of friend. Um, uh, inaugurated, right? We have inaugurations in America. When a president comes in, they are inaugurated, um, which means what? It means that their, that their presidency, that their administration has officially begun, but it's only begun. It's not yet in its fullness. The full four-year term hasn't come to its completion, but it started but the full effect of it hasn't been felt, right? Policies haven't put in place. They haven't made their appointments. They haven't put their cabinet together. They've been inaugurated, but not in its fullness. Inaugurated eschatology. It started, last things have started, but they're not yet here in their fullness. This is where the concept of already but not yet Christians believe in a bunch of alreadys but not yets. You've actually heard those traced throughout this very series. We believe that there's a sense in which when you put your faith in Jesus, you are saved. Take a simple one. But you are not yet fully saved. You are not yet fully free from your sin. You are not yet fully in relationship with God. Those things have started, but they're not yet here in their fullness. The Christian life is full of this concept, and it's because this is what we're living in, the already but not yet. Here's a little picture of it. This is my artistic, bam. Isn't that beautiful? This is just going to bring it, mm, uh, just bring it home for you. Okay, the already but not yet. The present evil age, that's what we're living in. That's where sin reigns. That's where everything's messed up. This is the age to come. What everybody thought was that these two circles would be separated, and that we would jump from one into another one. Instead, what the New Testament says is we're living in this overlap, and it started, this is an empty tomb. I knew you knew that already, but that's an empty tomb. It started with the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is not a bizarre event, here I'm quoting N.T. Wright, who we'll talk about later, is not a bizarre event in the world as we've always known it. It's the first event, the prototypical event, if you will, it's the prototype of the world 
as it will one day be. The resurrection gives us a little glimpse into what is this going to be like? And it happens, though, in the midst of this present evil age. Again, the misconception is that the end of the world hasn't happened yet. As Christians, we believe it has, but it's not yet here in its fullness. We're living in this overlap, right? The Spirit of God has connected us to God, has made us children of God, but we don't experience that yet in its fullness, right? None of us see God face to face. None of us don't continue to struggle with sin, though God is working things out in us. We long for the fullness of these things to come, but we taste of the beginning of these things. There's things that are already true of us, but there's also longings that we have because there are things that are not yet true of us and of this world. Making sense? All right, we're going somewhere. Just track with me. Misconception number two. We can use the Bible to predict Jesus's return. Uh, Christians love this one. Um, we love to try and predict when Jesus is coming back. Uh, some of you, some of you grew up, some of you came from churches where there were charts on the wall that were predicting this. Christians have an awful record of that. Like, look around. Zero out of zero of those predictions <laughs> were accurate, right? Um, I grew up, I got in a bathtub once at a certain time on a Thursday because Jesus was coming back. That's what uh, someone that, whatever, my parents read said, um, and we got out of the bathtub um, eventually. Um, this, this just doesn't have a great track record. And I think that, by the way, this doesn't have a great track record from jump for Christians. The letters to the Thessalonians, if you know those in the New Testament, the letters to the Thessalonians are written to a group of people that were obsessed with believing that they knew when Jesus was going to come back. And Paul, in so many words, if I had to summarize those two letters, it's, guys, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You've got to get, get busy living for God and not living for something that you're not going to be able to predict. Like there's other things to give your attention to. Jesus tried. He tried really hard to get his people not to do this. This is what he said while he was still with us. He said, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, and this is what you would have said to Jesus, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. We all would have asked that. It's a good, valid, totally legitimate question. He had just been talking about the end of the world, how it would all go down, now, privately, they're like, Jesus, we didn't want to put you on blast. Clearly, you didn't want to say when it was going to be. Um, like, what about us? Like, what about your boys? Like, so uh, when are we going to know? Because it'd be pretty dope, right? Like, stock market, like, you could play this out, like, pretty accurately. Um, Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name. He's talking about Christians. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. How many of you grew up in a church where people talk about wars and rumors of wars? Just Rachel and I? I know Rachel did. Um, right? Wars and rumors of wars. That was, that's normally used by Christians to say, ooh, wars and rumors of wars. Jesus is coming back. He says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. We say wars and rumors. Every time there's a war, we say, this is it, right? Every, what's going on in Gaza? Christians everywhere are saying, this is it. It might it be it. I really hope it's it. I really hope it's it. Not, not because, I because I want going on what's going on in the Middle East. I long for Jesus' return. I'd love it. 
I'd love it if this were the time. Here's what Jesus is saying. Guys, this season of overlap, this era of overlap, this time of overlap will be characterized by still this present evil age. There's still going to be wars and rumors of wars. That's gonna, that stuff is going to continue. But that's not a sign that I'm coming back. That's just what this world as it is is. Think of how many countless hundreds of wars there have been between Jesus saying this and now. And we could say, well, Jesus said when there's wars and rumors of wars, he comes back. He says, he literally says, see that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now he's getting into a metaphor that the New Testament uses a lot. It says something new is being birthed in the world. For the last 2,000 years, there is something advancing in the world towards fullness. But much like birth, the advancing of that newness, it hurts and it doesn't come without disruption and pain. And he's saying because it comes in this present evil age, ladies, right? One One of the results of the fall is that childbearing hurts. Can I get an amen? Amen, right? We have some pregnant, it, it won't for you, right? Like, it won't for you. But right, like, um, I watched this with my dear wife, right? Like, that's the metaphor that God uses for what this age will be. Paul uses this metaphor, and he says, this is about the beginning of birth time. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. By the way, this happens to these guys. This happens to them. They're handed over. They face persecution. They're martyred for their faith. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do you hear all these things he's building up? He's saying, I know it feels like because I came back, from here on out, everything's going to be easy. I know it feels like because in one sense, the end of the world has started. You're about to see me resurrected from the dead. You're going to think, people who follow Jesus, we're never going to suffer. People who follow Jesus, we're going to win. People who follow Jesus, we're going to run countries and governments, and we're going to have our say in how we want the world to be. And Jesus is like, that's not, that's not how it's going to be. Your, your, your life is, is going to be a lot like my life, because I myself am sent from God and fully who God intended me to be. And look at my life. I was handed over. So too will you be. Like your life will be cross-shaped before resurrection. Not all resurrection from jump. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Check it out. I almost want you to repeat this after me. Read this with me. And then the end will come. If there's one thing embedded in Jesus' words that in some sense times out the coming of the end of the world, it's that every tribe, tongue, nation has to hear the gospel. So I would say if there's one thing that's not misguided that Christians believe about the end of the world, it's those who really believe it's worth giving your life to go to every tribe, tongue, nation so that they might hear the gospel. Because that's what Jesus is waiting on. If you ask the question, why is there this overlap? The unified answer the New Testament gives is so that many might come to repentance. So that someone in some tribe somewhere who has never heard the gospel 
right now that has never been exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ might one day hear the good news. Jesus says, once that happens, then the end will come. He waited for you. He's waiting on someone else. And he's calling us maybe to be the instrument through which that someone else. But every other way of trying to predict the end of the world by saying, oh, the hornets in Revelation are actually helicopters. Now we know that, right? Like that's not, that's, that's, you laugh, right? But I get it because we should long for the end of the world. But Jesus from Jump is saying, guys, you're gonna get distracted by this stuff. And this stuff is gonna, is gonna cause division among my own people. That's silly. There's a job to do. I'm calling you to evangelize the nations. That's a really hard, complicated job that's gonna take many hands. And if you guys get stuck on when's the rapture, when's the tribulation, what's the millennium, you, you're, gonna, you're gonna mess it up, okay? Like go evangelize the nations, get busy doing that. Stop with this stuff. He tried, okay? We didn't listen. What else is new? Okay, number three, misconception about the end of the world. Christians will live in heaven with Jesus forever. <laughs> Again, it's not a misprint. That's a misconception. I hope, I really do. I hope that if you've been in our church long enough, you've done discipleship course, this one you know why this is a misconception. I really hope that. Um, if you don't, that's okay. I'm not trying to shame you, but, we, but I feel like we talk about this a lot. So this might be for someone really new to faith, maybe new to our church, is it is common to say that Christians' hope is that when we die, we go and live with Jesus forever, which, which has this Im implied in it is, and this world can burn down for all we care because our hope is elsewhere. This world doesn't really matter to us. I'm going to another home one day. I'll fly away, Right? I'll fly away, oh glory, and the world, the world can do whatever the world's going to do. Burn out as far as I care, right? This is, this is just not the teaching of the Bible. This comes from medieval depictions of angels on clouds in togas. Um, I don't know about you, but as a kid who grew up in church, I was always like, I'm supposed to want to do that? Like, one, that's a little embarrassing what with the toga and... I don't want to play a harp and like, you know, and like, how do we get from cloud to cloud? It's all very confusing. Um, and this is supposed to be heaven. Like, I like basketball a lot more than that. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of things I like more than the thought of playing a harp on a cloud, like, you know, thousands of miles away from everyone I love or something, right? Um, and we just adopted this and we made this like, yep, that's what the Bible teaches. When you die, you go up. When you die, you go up. You go up and you're gone. And you float with Jesus and maybe your soul goes and lives with Jesus forever, right? This is the kind of language we use. Um, and it's fine. I get it. It's comforting language. Um, people said similar things to me when my mom died. It's very comforting to say, yep, now, you know, she's in a better place and all those things. Um, here's, what the, here's what the Bible actually teaches. It's what, it's what Chris read. This is the end of the world, like the real end, like the closing chapter. Then I saw a new heaven, new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What's the movement there? Who goes up? Who goes down? Who, who, who comes down? God. 
Who goes up? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody goes up, right? God comes down, right? We don't go to live with God forever. God comes to live with us. And that's not just, a, that's not just an interesting, whatever, uh, little detail difference. That says something about God's creation, that God is so invested in what he has created that he intends to dwell here forever one day. That heaven and earth being separate entities. Now look, why, you, why so many of us have heard that and believe that we go and live with Jesus is because the Bible does mention in one singular place that when someone dies, they go to live with Jesus in heaven, right? That age to come and this present evil age, think of that also as, as heaven and earth. That earth such as it is and heaven are in some sense separate. When Jesus came back, there was this overlap. Heaven came to earth. And guess what? One day, those two circles will be perfectly overlapping. Heaven and earth will be one. But the emphasis, the far more exciting thing than us going and living with God is God coming to live with us. Now, here's what the Bible does say. In one place, that when we die, we are present with the Lord. What that means, how all that works, we have no idea. It's far more concerned with life after life after death. Catch that? It's far more concerned with life. Yeah, do that. Life after life after death. Bible doesn't say a lot about life after death, like immediately after death. It says a lot about our existence after life after death. <laughs> and here's what it says. One day, God comes back to earth and dwells with us forever. And in coming back, he brings all the realities of heaven on earth. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Right? Yeah, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's longing for this. That's saying make every reality that's true in heaven, where your will is unrivaled, where there is no sin, where everybody does exactly what you want them to do, make all of that true here on earth. And the Bible says that day's coming. And when that comes, every tear will be wiped away. Mourning shall be no more. There will be full healing and every single aspect of what it means to be human. Our stories somehow will be utterly transformed such that all the sad things come untrue. That's a far better hope than going and, and having a disembodied, vague existence in some other elsewhere. God loves this earth. He loves your physical body. He loves what he's created enough to one day dwell here forever. That's what we're longing for. That's what I long for with, right, if you've lost someone, is I love that, I love knowing my mom is present with the Lord. Whatever that means, that's enough for me for now. What I long for is one day to run and skip and be joyous and every single thing that was wrong with her body at the end is utterly healed and undone and she becomes physically embodied who she always was and I get to experience that again. And far better even than that, one day this God who I've only known through a glass dimly this God who seems at times afar off entirely because of my own sin and my own sort of spiritual apathy, one day I will stand before him face to face. I'll get to experience him in the fullness and there'll be no resistance in me to that. I'll just be fully available to that and he'll be fully available to me and he'll entrust that full presence to me because I'm utterly transformed. That's what I long for, right? That's a far better hope. All right, those are the three misconceptions. The end of the world hasn't happened yet. We can use the Bible to predict Jesus' return. Christians will live in heaven uh, with Jesus forever. 
All right, let's go back to our orthodoxy, orthopathy, orthopraxy, right? These things, this whole series. You might be like, whoa, what did he just say? Um, that's something we frame the series around. Orthodoxy, right belief. Orthopathy, right desires. Orthopraxy, right action, behavior in the world. Orthodoxy. Okay, what's right belief in these things? Here's what we do know. Let me walk you through these. Here's what we actually do know. One, with certainty, Jesus will return. Amen? <laughs> Amen. If you need a scripture for it, I'll throw a scripture at you. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. By the way, when the end comes, we'll know it comes, is what Jesus is saying. It's going to be wild. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He's coming back. He's coming back. The story's not over yet, and the story ends with Jesus showing up again in the human story. We know that. We can be confident of that. He rose from the grave. Every word he said has been true, proven true. When he says he's coming back, I will be back, right? Like, for some reason, that's what I thought of this week, um, is he means it. He will be. It's a promise. It's as sure as anything else he ever said. You can take hope in that. Number two, Jesus will judge. There will be a judgment in the end. Jesus does not shy away from this reality. We, as his followers, should not shy away from this reality. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Notice who's doing the judging. I think sometimes we think Jesus is the sweetheart, right? We, we create these metaphors of Jesus is the lawyer, and it's actually God the Father who's the mean, scary judge. Who's sitting on the throne doing the judging? It's Jesus. Jesus is the judge. Jesus isn't just your lawyer. Jesus is your judge which is pretty unbelievably good news when you realize the only reason you're going to get in is because you're in him. You're going to show up and he goes, oh, you're one of mine. That's the image. That's the metaphor. He knows you. If you're saved in him, he's your judge. He's not just your savior. He didn't get you out of it with his big scary dad. He's the judge. The, the judge became your savior. That's, that's like shouting good news. That's really, really good news. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a sh shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The final judgment is as core to Christian doctrine as anything else. There is a judgment coming, and it will be based on your allegiance to Jesus. And I wish that I could caveat that to death and say it another way, but, it, but the thing that will matter most in eternity is how did you respond to Christ? And if you are here today and you are someone who has not made that decision, you have sat on the fence for many years maybe, maybe you've departed from the faith of your youth and said that was very silly back then. Look, let's get grown up. Let's get grown up. And so you've got to make a decision about whether you really believe that one day you will return to nothingness or does something deep within you say, man, it feels like everything in me screams that says I will have to give an account one day. Unless you have so quieted that down, unless you have muted that enormously, there's something in the human heart. The Bible calls that, that the human heart speaks to eternity. It has eternity, that God has placed eternity within us. And I think part of placing eternity within us is this sense that, man, I feel accountable to something, to capital S, someone. 
It's because you are, and his name is Jesus. But there's really good news if you were listening in two minutes ago. The one that you will stand before has also been the one who has offered you a way of standing in that judgment, a way of getting a not guilty spoken over your life. And it's not by coming and providing you some moral reform to make you a better person from here on out such that maybe by the end, the good outweighs the bad. Let me let you in on a secret. Most of us in this room are followers of Jesus. Our good deeds are never gonna stack up better than the bad deeds, even even the greatest saints in here. They know it and they know it to their core. There has to be another way. And so a perfect one comes and stands in our place, put himself on a cross and took on all of the bad stuff that you know you're accountable for. And he said, you can put it here now. Either it's on my ledger on that day or it's on my person as I'm on the cross bearing the full weight and punishment for it. And he says, if you would just make that decision, put it on me. That's what he's saying. When he says it is finished, he's talking in an eternal cosmic sense. He's also talking in a personal sense. He's saying it can be done for you. It can be over for you. The declaration over your life can be finalized if you just put it on me. He makes that offer. And one day we'll stand before him and give an account of whether we received that or whether we rejected it. And ultimately, Jesus will look over our lives and not so much say my will be done, it's he will say your will be done. Whether, whether, whether you wanted me or whether you didn't, your, your will be done. He will hand us over to that choice. Jesus will judge. Number three, what do we know? That the new heavens, the new earth is our final home. You've heard that read several times now. This beautiful vision of the four corners of creation, utterly undone, the effects of sin completely rolled back, humanity restored, Here's a cool way to even think about what it means for us to be in the new heavens and new earth. We've gone back to this image of God thing a couple times, um, starting when Jalen preached it way back, and he talked about how being in the image of God means we're in relationship with God, means we're meant to represent him, means we're meant to resemble him. Another cool way to think about our eternal resting place being in the new heavens and the new earth is to say that the image of God is fully restored in us. We're in face-to-face relationship with God. We'll perfectly represent him. We join him in the project of making all things new. There's this really cool stuff in Revelation about the nations bringing in their sort of cultural artifacts into the new city, Jerusalem. Um, And what that seems to suggest is that the best of what humanity has produced, what's truly capital G good, capital B beautiful, will actually be what makes up that eternal city. Because if you notice, I don't want to get, I don't want to chase too much of a rabbit trail, but one of the fascinating things about the new heavens and new earth is um, what location does the biblical story start in? Location. Yeah, good. Garden of Eden, right? Even if you don't know the Bible, you might be familiar with that. But we end in, in where? What's the physical location? Yeah, it's a city, right? It's New Jerusalem. What's cool is it's kind of a garden city, because there's a river running through it. There's these trees. It's like the best of Central Park. So why go from a garden to a garden city? Who makes cities? People. People make cities. In other words, we go from something, we go from nature, which is entirely made by God, which entirely, right, we can't make nature. We can only take nature, rearrange it, and make more nature. But a city is about human production. And so this vision at the end is the coming together of those two things in this perfect harmony. And so we perfectly represent the image of God, right? We actually do exactly what he would physically do if he were present there. We, we become that in our full, and we resemble it. 
we resemble him, right? Why, why talk about this as, did you hear that language? It's such interesting language that we appear as a bride prepared for, for her husband. Why? Because marriage is this picture into how, how two separate beings can become one. It says that, that's just pointing to this oneness that we will eventually have with God, where we will so perfectly re- resemble him that we'll somehow be caught up in him like, like the oneness of marriage. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Guys, that's our hope. Like, that's where this whole thing is headed. That's pretty cool. Um, here's, here's, now we got to land this thing, right? Like, okay, so what? What does all of this mean? Whenever I talk about the end, especially the couple things that I just talked about, right? Jesus will really judge that we will give an account. I always think of this quote from C.S. Lewis, great Christian author of the last century, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, but um, has increasingly become known for being a defender of the Christian faith since his, since his death. C.S. Lewis once said this, there are no ordinary people. He's speaking with reference to where this whole story is headed, to the end of the world. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This, this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. You've never encountered a mere mortal. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about if, if all of this Christian stuff is true, then people matter more than anything. Because people will either one day be judged and sent to in, in eternal existence that we would shudder to even imagine some kind of separation from God, however you parse that out, right? That, that there is a judgment that results in not being with God forever, or that person will one day get to enjoy every single ounce of what we've been describing here today. He says that should make how we treat people the most important thing in the world. That should make the extent to which we thoughtfully, winsomely, carefully, lovingly actually share this with people and actually be bold about, hey, this is what I believe I'll be doing forever. What do you think? Right? That's why that matters. And I think that this, this is what Jesus knew from jump, is he knew if my people get busy having these intramural debates about when is this going to happen, and when is this, and what's the time of this, and who's the Antichrist, and all of these things, they will take their eyes off the ball, which is, guys, the only thing that I'm trying to get you to do is create a greater urgency for the gospel in your time, and among your sphere, and among the people that you love. Because this will happen. This will happen. I'm not going to tell you exactly how it'll happen, because I think you'll get obsessed with it. So I'm going to make it a little bit mysterious, but I'm going to be super clear on, on where it's all headed. And oh, that we would have that urgency. Oh, that even what we talk about today would not leave you saying, I wonder what Pastor Scott believes about the millennium, right? <laughs> like, um, but that it would leave you saying, I've got to be a little bit bolder at work. The, the, the students that I study with, man, when they ask me what I did on Sunday, I'm actually going to be honest and be like, man, we talk about the end of the world. And I know that you probably think Christians believe some weird stuff. But, here, but here's what we actually believe. What do you think of that? Do you really think your nothingness going back to nothingness, time, space, matter, exploding together for however many years you have and then just no purpose, no nothing? I don't believe that for you. I don't want you to have to live that way, right? I think that that's what right 
belief leads us to. Orthopathy, right, desires. I wrote this as joyful confidence in our future hope. Um, when, I think of <laughs> when I think of hope, I think of, uh, well, I think of some of the kids in this community, honestly, when I hear the word hope. Um, it's a great name. Um, when I think of hope, uh, this is what I think of, sort of a joyful confidence um, in the future. And the image that comes to mind for me is being a high school kid and, um, uh, right, I've, I've played sports, and, um, and I always think of game day, and you'd show up in school, and for us, you'd either have to, there were some coaches that wanted us to wear suits on game day, there were some coaches that just wanted us to wear, like, the gear of the team or whatever, but I always loved that day because school just felt easier, school felt faster, everything was kind of put into perspective, it's because you're like, I got a game tonight, like, okay, whatever, I got a test, like, I would care less about all of that, I would stress less, because my eyes were just set on, like, what I'm wearing right now means that something is coming that's going to be dope, and that would make me happy. If you want the way truer analogy, I'll give you sort of the, the other side of this, it's when I knew I had a date, <laughs> and you'd be like, and you'd be like, Friday night, yeah, exactly, she was one of the ones that I did, right there, um, and you know you have a date, and it just puts the week in perspective. It puts work in perspective. You're just kind of, everybody's like, you seem happy today. And you're like, isn't it great working here, right? <laughs> everybody's like, what's with you? Um, it changes you, right? That having, having a sure joy in your future changes your now. It changes your present. It, gives, it puts things in perspective, right? I even love the analogy of like wearing the clothes that signal that, right? Like, like living into your Christian identity now is like putting on that garb and saying, this means it's coming for sure. And I think that one of the things that you experience as you walk with Jesus and as we mature in faith is as you, as you more embody that garb, right, the more sure you are that that thing is coming. Um, and, and I'm not trying to be like uh, overly sappy or anything, but one of the things that we will forever remember about my mom's last days is there was... <laughs> There wasn't even the, the least shred of doubt for her of where she was headed. She, I'll tell you a story. This is one of the funnier things that happened. You, you have to laugh um, in these days sometimes. But one time she closed her eyes very near the end. It's like a day, it was the day that, that she eventually passed. And one of the times that she closed her eyes, right, they're trying to get the morphine right and all this stuff. And my dad leans over her and he's talking to her and, um, and you know, he's telling her he loves her. And my mom opens her eyes. And, and she looks at him, and she goes, ugh. <laughs> and I forget exactly how she said it. Yeah, she, she, said, she said something like, oh, I'm still here. And, and she was just so sure that the next time she would open her eyes, she'd be present with the Lord. That even her husband, who she adored, was like, oh, this is not it, right? Like, this is not what I'm longing for. And it was just this beautiful affirmation of us that she had walked so closely with God that her hope by the end was so sure. It was so certain to her. It was not, right? And some people think that we Christians are pie-in-the-sky people who are just crossing our fingers until the very end. Ooh, I hope. I hope all this is real. Man, you walk with Jesus, and faith slowly, already but not yet, 
faith, in a sense, begins to be really fuzzy sight. <laughs> Never faith fully to sight. That's our hope, is faith to sight. But a saint like my mom had a, had a, had a fuzzy sight about her faith that she said, I know, just one more close of the eyes, one more turn of the lens of my focus, and I'll see. That changes you now. That changes not just how you approach death. Even more so, it changes how you approach life. Orthopraxy. So what do we do? We Christians, we pray uh, that God's kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. You've heard me say this many times. Um, Church, we are to be the answers to those prayers. We are to be the ones who bring kingdom realities into the here and now. We are the ones who are to obey God's will such that God's will is increasingly done in our individual lives and in this world as we actually faithfully walk that out. Uh, I know of no better quote than this that really captures how Christians' behavior, how Christians think about our lives and what we set our hands to is to be determined by some of these realities we're talking about today. It is a three-slide quote, okay? And I'm going to trust you that you can stick with me we got three slides. You're going to be okay. Um, this is N.T. Wright, though. I know of nothing better than this. Ready? Here we go. If the creation is to be renewed, not abandoned. We just said that that's one of the things that we can be sure about. And if that work has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus, Christians must be in the forefront of bringing, in the present time, signs and foretastes of God's eventual full healing to bear upon the created order in all its parts and at every level. If the world is to be put to rights, brought under the saving lordship of God's restorative justice, and if that work has already been unveiled prototypically, I love that word, in Jesus' death and resurrection, it will not do to concentrate on individual justification while allowing wired issues of justice to go unaddressed. Christians must be in the forefront of bringing in the present time signs and foretastes of God's healing justice to bear upon the world that is full of corruption, injustice, oppression, division, suspicion, and war. And if the world is to attain its full beauty and dignity as God's liberated new creation, a beauty and dignity for which the present evidences of God's grandeur within creation are just a foretaste, it will not do to regard beauty and its creation and conservation as a pleasant but irrelevant optional extra within a world manipulated by science, exploited by technology, and bought and sold in the economic marketplace. Are you still with me? In this extraordinary, Christians must be in the forefront of bringing in the present time signs and foretastes of God's fresh beauty to birth within the world, signs of hope for what the Spirit will yet do. Last one, with Easter, God's new creation is launched upon a surprise world, pointing ahead to the renewal, the redemption, the rebirth of the entire creation. Every act of love, every deed done in Christ and by the Spirit, every act of true creativity, doing justice, making peace, healing families, resisting temptation, seeking and winning true freedom is an earthly event in a long history of things that implement Jesus' own resurrection and anticipate the final new creation and act as signposts of hope, pointing back to the first and on to the second. Isn't that good? that implement Jesus' own resurrection and anticipate the final new creation and act as signposts of hope. That can happen in your kitchen, right? That can happen in your classroom. That can happen in your office. Just a little bit of heaven. A little bit of, man, God would care what the vibe is at my office this week, whether people feel loved and cared for. God would care how I respond when I'm frustrated with my kids. What would it look like to be a little bit of God's grace, a little bit of God's healing to this moment, rather than the old nonsense that, yeah, I'm complicit in bringing? What would it look like to actually be someone who implements 
the fact that this world will not always be as it is and anticipates what it will yet be by my very posture toward others this week. One of the things that the sure hope of the end of the world does for Christians is it makes the mundane cosmically, eternally significant because we get to participate in it. We get to be part of bringing that. We're part of what drags it in. You want my silly illustration for this? Anybody ever been to Seasons 52? Mm, fancy. Mm, mm, season 52, right? Very fancy. What do they bring you at the end? What do they bring you at the end? Those bizarre desserts. What are those things, right? Like they bring you the little thing. Do they still do this? I hope they still do this. Okay. They bring you those little things. It's been a while. Um, what are they? They're these little like bizarre samples that are taken out of who knows what, and they stick them into these shot glasses, and then you have like two scoops of raspberry cheesecake. And you're like, hmm, that was great, and you spend $9 on them or whatever. Um, but they bring them out, and they go, what do you want, right? And you'd look at these little cross sections. There are these bizarre cross sections like they were taken out of the earth or something. Um, because what are, what are they, though, right? The strawberry, the, the raspberry cheesecake, what is it? It's a little bit of an actual, probably, raspberry cheesecake. And I think they probably have some machine. Maybe one of you would work season 52. If you did, um, if this is what they do, tell me. If not, don't ruin it for me. But I just picture they have some machine that goes over this huge cake and goes, and like sucks up this little sample and then puts it in the shot glass. Okay, why, do, why is that my example? It's because our little lives are they're just a little, they're just a little taste. They're just a little shot glass. But you know what they do? They point to something bigger. They point to something, the fullness that our lives could never be worthy of. None of us can change the world. None of us can change the world. That's one of the hard truths of being a Christian. None of us can change the world. But we are called for our lives to be signs and foretastes of that fullness. And when we become that, <laughs> I'm extending the metaphor, we become delicious to the world, right? We cause the world to long for something better. If anyone has ever spoken over your life, we have some wonderful people in here, and they say, man, I want what you got. I want what you got. That's a season's 52 moment, <laughs> right? Seriously, because they're going, I, t I experience something in you that makes me long for something more for myself. That's what the end of the world is about. It's not about charts. It's not about predicting correctly when the end is going to come. It's to move us toward others in love. It's to move us toward the church in love so that we can become corporately a sign and foretaste. Central Jersey should never be the same. Central Jersey should grow increasingly discontent with life as they've always known it because we're here. I don't know how, pie, how much of that pie we could ever be that, but gosh, we could be a little foretaste of that, can't we? Just a little bit. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, this incredible truth. God, thank you for um, the responsibility that you've given us to live into this, to embody these things, um, to represent you and the beautiful place that you're taking this world. God, as we come to this table, I pray that we would do a little bit of self-reflection and figure out, God, um, yeah, where we've just grown apathetic to the hope that you've given us, Lord, where maybe we've lost hope, where maybe we're despairing today, where you want to just awaken us a little bit of that reality. Um, that truly all things will, uh, all sad things will come untrue one day. That truly all will be well. All manner of things will be well, Lord, um, in our lives. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.